Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Hi, and welcome to part two of my chat with former Metropolitan Police Firearms Officer Helen Barnett. If you haven't yet listened to episode one, I highly recommend you to pause this episode and listen to that one first. Not long after joining the Metropolitan Police, Helen found herself in a highly volatile situation, which saw her stabbed multiple times. After recovering from that incident only a few years later, she found herself just metres away from not one, but two bomb blasts courtesy of the IRA. Now you'd think after those two incidents you'd look to find yourself a nice, quiet office job away from danger. But not Helen. She was heading straight into the line of fire. Quite literally. You obviously had the dream and the desire to get into more um, tactical and, and, a, and a more uh, frontline firearms operational role in, in, in SO19. Well, when did that dream first come into come into your head that that was something that you wanted to pursue was it the fitness side of things that may have pushed you in that direction yeah so fitness was a major thing for me I think in hindsight it was a real um, coping mechanism as well with all the stress and trauma you know keeping fit and that was a sort of a coping mechanism but yeah I just saw saw an advert um, uh, you know within um, the, the, the uh, 
Oh, I can't think now. But yeah, there was an advert for the firearms department and it was really unusual um, to have women um, on the armed response vehicles. It was just a you know, very, very new thing. And I just thought, you know, probably a great challenge, really. Mm. Um, so I, I applied and uh, went through the, the application process and, uh, yeah, I was accepted and... Um, just sort of went into a, an extremely stressful job on top of all the other stress that I was dealing so, with. So, for our view, so for our listeners that aren't too familiar with with British policing, can you just explain to us what SO19 is all about? Yeah, so SO19 it was um, the, the firearms department and the armed response vehicles were a very new concept back then. So that was 1994. So that was just you know armed police actually sort of visibly. Uh, on the streets um, patrolling and uh, responding to armed incidents so yeah it was a very very new new concept Um, and as I said a few minutes ago you know um, women in that role was very unusual I I was I think I was about third woman and the first mum ever to to be accepted so um, yeah very very male dominated role traditionally and as you say what a what a what a what a phenomenal achievement to um to get into it as the first mum into into SO19 into kind of you know this elite group of individuals that are charged with the responsibility of diffusing and resolving incidents of you know of a serious nature with individuals that often are causing serious harm what was it like working in such a male dominated environment was there you know was there a mutual respect amongst your colleagues was there a bit of apprehension amongst your colleagues how did they how did they react to having a, a lady amongst them sitting in the car yeah so th- the 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 people that I was actually working with, I, I'd say, were um, you know re- really great. To be honest, uh, we were kind of a new sort of era, all of us, um, mm. and they they were great. I think you know they've been used to working with women on, on you know wherever they come from. So I, I I didn't I didn't really get any any trouble really. I got, got the odd bit of you know banter as you'd expect, but you know they they were they were really great. I think traditionally. Um, you know, because it had been such a male inf- environment, um, the, the, the probably the older guys who'd been in maybe were you know had a bit of a scepticism towards it all. But I, you know, I, I was treated really well. To be fair, I can't, I can't, um, you know, say anything other than that. You know, they were great. So let's let's skip to nineteen ninety four. You're in SO19. And no doubt enjoying and thriving in this new environment that is relatively new and I think probably was perceived by others as being a relatively excuse the term kind of sexy role in terms of firearms and often the best vehicles all kitted out ready to go and then 1994 you found yourself again at the pointy end of confrontation and 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 at this point escalating to probably the most extreme element in terms of you got quite badly hurt are you able to talk us through that particular day? Yeah, so that day, that was um, it was Boxing Day, nineteen ninety four. We'd just got back to the base at Old Street to go home uh, at the end of our shift, and we were just just uh, literally to, you know, parking up, and a call came out to Enfield. Um, the local police needed some uh, firearms assistance because they'd they'd been called to a, to a domestic dispute, and um, this guy had he'd taken his young toddler in a pushchair from his girlfriend, and she'd seen a gun, and he'd got a history uh, of violence with firearms. 
so we we've been called to back up the local police so we we all set set off um up to, to enfield from old street and uh liaise with the local police at the police station and um friend of mine nick and i we um we borrowed some just civilian jackets from the local officers put them over the top of our uniform and went and had a look at the flat where we knew he was barricaded in um with a view to sort of looking at the layout of the flat the entrance hall everything and you know uh, to, to, to later on go around everybody to go around and hopefully peacefully you know resolve the situation mm. so we, we went around did a sketch plan nick was more experienced than i um and uh, then we drove back to the rendezvous point which was a street um probably about quarter of a mile away at the most from from the address yeah uh all the cars all the firearms cars were all parked up there was an ambulance on standby and we were just getting ready to, to go around to the flat um, and I remember being stood at the back of the car, sort of thinking, I'm really tired, I want to go home. All sort of some mundane thoughts. Yeah. I must get my, <laughs> must get my body armour on, we've got to get ready, you know. It's, it was kind yeah. of that, we were all quite sort of uh, relaxed at this point. And have you got a, have you got a silver commander there talking you through what, how you're going to deploy? Is there somebody there that's um, kind of guiding this whole operational strategy? I think there was probably a sergeant there who was just sort of... Um, Pointing and scratching. Yeah, pointing and scratching. <laughs> but I think it was probably one of those that we we were between us had worked out what we were going to do. You know, it was. Yeah. It, it, um, yeah. So there, I was at the back of the car, um, and I, then I heard one of my colleagues shout, "It's him!" And just a few feet away, in the sort of the entrance to, to the junction of of where the road that we were in, side road that we were in. Um, he appeared, our suspect appeared. Um, so we all reacted, we kind of started running towards him. And again, this happened so quickly. Um, I saw him, he got a great big sort of sheepskin coat on and a buggy in one hand. And I saw him pull a, a handgun from his from his coat and put it in his mouth. Um, wow. And, again, and it just literally evolved faster than I can explain it now. So it's sort of reacting, I remember being, totally terrified inside but obviously your training kicks in and you're doing the opposite to what you kind of want to do in a way you want to run away but you, you're not going to run away because it's the job you're doing um and but he's come out with the child stroller is that right so has he got the has he got the child with him so he's got the child with him and he's come out looking for us so what we didn't know is he's he's seen nick and i at, at the flat and he's come out looking for us so now you've got this ed- this added dynamic and pressure that you've got a guy with a gun who's also got a child in his company, which has got to be the most terrifying situation ever. How do you, you know, that, that that's a really difficult situation. Exactly, with a backdrop of a bus stop with yeah. Christmas shop with Christmas shoppers stood at the backdrop of uh, behind him. So, wow. uh, and I, I can't kind of explain how quickly it happened. So you really don't have time to actually think and process. It's just sort of your gut instinct and training just to kind of kicks in so yeah so i'm running towards him as it as are the other guys and um the, the guns in his mouth and then suddenly the, his arms outstretched and i just see a massive uh puff of smoke and um this bang which is clearly a gunshot um and i feel like i've been hit by a train 
um, this huge impact that, that that knocked me off my feet. Um, I went down on on one knee. Um, I hadn't even had time to, to to pull my gun out of the holster, so that's how kind of quickly this all happened. Um, I knew instantly that I'd been shot, and uh, but, but didn't feel any pain. It's just this huge impact. Do you think? Do you think adrenaline kicks in? Do you think it's the adrenaline that that kind of blocks that out to start with? Yeah, definitely adrenaline, and I guess it's just kind of shock. Um, yeah. I remember he was. He, I think he was hit by my colleagues. Shot about eight times. I think about twelve rounds went went off. It was absolutely chaotic. Oh, yeah. But I, I, I can't remember any of that. I didn't hear anything. Um, it, it just everything just shut off and closed in. So all I remember was this boom smoke. And then just that was it, you know, the, the impact. Um, and I've since been told I was dragged dragged into safety behind a car. I can't I can't remember that how I got behind the car, the police car. But um, yeah, so um, and I, there I was. I was on the ground, and uh, yeah, I'd been shot um, and hit. The bullet had gone through the front of my knee and out the back, and um, yeah, so. I was lay there on the ground. Um, my colleagues started giving me first aid. The ambulance was already on scene and um, it started cutting off my uniform. And I remember seeing the hole in my knee. Um, oh, that must be, that's a fairly confronting scene in itself, Helen, to see that. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of at that point I, when I, I think I felt really vulnerable and the pain kicked in and mm. um, and funny, there was a friend of mine who was, who was at the scene on duty and he he ran across the road and looked down at me and I remember him I remember him saying oh no not you again see this now I make heart I make light of this you know I, I was often called and you have to excuse my language here I was often called a shit magnet when I was in the cops because or you know or you know because because whenever something went bad where on earth is Ollie he's got to be nearby somewhere yeah the so I assume that people are saying, "Hang on a second, Helen, something's going on here." <laughs> yeah, I think I think they 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 nicknamed me Lucky after that. <laughs> I have no doubt they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so I suppose in all seriousness, you're lying on the floor, you're receiving serious first aid, you're probably surrounded by paramedics. But on the flip side of this, you've got colleagues who have discharged discharged sorry a dozen rounds, um, incapacitated this individual. At what point did the realization of that side of things set, you know, at what point did you realize that that carnage was unfolding and that, you know, this individual had been dealt with, the child was safe, you know, were you asking those questions? To be honest, I wasn't um, aware of of any of that. I kind of maybe must have been somewhere in my subconscious because, you know, obviously knew at some point it had become a safe, you know, the shooting had stopped, but consciously I kind of wasn't really very aware of anything. Um, I was obviously made aware after, you know, this, yeah. what I've been told. Um, but yeah, it was just literally everything kind of closed in, and um, you know, I was obviously in shock and shaking on the floor. And um, I remember the the air ambulance. I can remember the noise of the air ambulance landing. I remember that really distinctly. And um, one of them in an orange 
um, all in, yeah, yeah, coming up, looking at me and checking that I was okay with the paramedics and stuff. And I think our suspect went in the air ambulance because he was more seriously injured than I was. So, how does that? It's an interesting question. How does that make you feel? I suppose as a police officer who's been shot by a bad guy, by an evil individual, and there he is getting that care from Hems doctors. You know, there's there is nothing more amazing uh, than somebody arriving in a helicopter to deliver. You know, often doctors at the at the real serious end. Was there any kind of resentment towards that level of treatment that somebody would get, or is it just part of the job? No, not not at all. Not entered my head at all. No, I mean we were trained. You know, whatever mm. happened to whoever, whoever they were, they got treated the same first. You know, so it was just not not on my radar at all to think like that. No. See, and I think that's and I think there lies the amazing trait in police officers like yourself to go through such an, a confronting situation to be seriously hurt and to still have no. Obviously, there's there's hatred and there's anger and there's resentment towards the individual, but still allowing them to receive the same level of care that you would care because you know that your training kicks in, which I think just shows the level of professionalism that you held yourself to. Yeah, and I just think my character as well. You know, um, just that the way I am, I just didn't think like that either. You know, it's just um, yeah, just didn't and I, I think uh, that enabled me to cope actually with it with all the incidents I think I, I always felt they weren't attacking me as Helen it was just me as the police officer and I think that's yeah. been a, a really that's helped me cope cope with it if that makes sense no 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 I think no I think I don't think ever that I think an attack on a policeman is is personal I think it's very much of the role and the representation of you know law enforcement and you know that th- that's the resentment that that's what people don't like if they if they have a if they have a grievance it's not with the individual it's what they represent so a firearms incident doesn't just end there does it you know what once if 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 somebody is seriously hurt if if officers discharge their firearms there's a, there's a, there's quite a significant investigation which comes from that which often impacts officers equally as much as the incident itself and were you part of that as a result of that yeah so obviously i i went off to the local hospital and was treated and operated on and um yeah and all the other guys i mean i obviously wasn't a part of this so it's quite sketchy my memory of it but obviously you know they they have to get um they make their statements and they're all part of a big sort of criminal investigation now and uh so yeah i mean it was it was it, i know i know it was hugely impacted on on all of them and um i know they wanted to come up to see me to just make sure that i was okay at the hospital and they weren't allowed to and i think that they found that really really hard you know because at the end of the day you know we were friends and he like you said earlier um you know human beings aren't we just like everybody else you know got all those emotions that any human beings got so well I, th- I think importantly you know from a policing sense you know there's often that description that you spend more time in the patrol car with the person sitting beside you than sometimes you do your own wife or husband and you become a family you know and and, and i think it's 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 the coping mechanism to support your family and to make sure your brothers and sisters, which is ultimately what the thin blue line is made up of, is how we kind of look at each other. Is is that's the support mechanism reaching out to make sure that you are okay? So I can imagine that would have been an incredibly frustrating period for those guys and girls not to be able to come and see you to kind of you know just check in with you as, as we would expect to do. Yeah, and I think that I think they were quite resentful over that. Yeah, I think it, you know they were obviously very traumatized by the whole thing as well. You know, so. Um, yeah, so yes, they they were 
you know, it's a big, big, huge investigation when somebody's shot, quite rightly so. So, um, yeah, we were we were all involved in that. But obviously my my priority at that time was to, you know, sort of... Um, recover. As the, yeah, as the injured one, yeah, recover, yeah. Do you think, you know, going through those types of situations, do you think there's extra skills and, and attributes that an individual needs to have to be able to overcome them, to be able to deal with them? Because, you know, Sir Bernard has often said one of the previous Met Commissioners that our officers run at the danger whilst everybody is heading in the opposite direction. And, it, you know, there's, there's, there's extra skills that I think. What, what do you think those skills are that people have to be able to, to have that flight or fight attitude to run towards danger when, when clearly everyone's going in the opposite direction? Yeah. It, you, you touched on it earlier, the word resilience. I think, I think it, my core it goes back to um, my upbringing. Um, we were just allowed to be like free kids. And, you know, if you fell out of a tree or whatever, you know, you, you broke your leg or what, you know, that you was kind yourself of yourself up and back yeah, up exactly um and i've got a sense of doing the right thing as well brought up to do the right thing and just this moral sort of um you know that to strongly believe in doing the right thing so i think just that combined you know um determination that physical strength as well and um yeah just all those characters i think you, you need um do you think it's a generational thing? Do you think as, a, as we've kind of moved on through the years, you know, 2000s and, you know, the 2020s now, do you think a bit of that resilience has gone a little bit? Do you think we, you know, there's from your observations, I know you're no longer in the police, but can you make observations that maybe that we, there's examples where we probably give up a bit too easily, that that resilience isn't as strong as it probably used to be? Yeah, I do worry that um, our society's gone a bit that way, um, that... You know, when we're just a, a little bit risk averse, you know, that sometimes you've got to, obviously nobody wants to, to fall out of a tree and break their leg. It's not ideal. But, you no. know, that, um, I do think maybe we've got too protective. I don't know. It does, it does worry me slightly that we have to be exposed to some level um, of these things to, to gain that resilience within us um, if that makes sense it, no no it makes perfect sense and and you know so you reflect on your resilience so you graduate you're seriously hurt and stabbed by a gentleman who's suffering from psychosis you evacuate people from a shopping center whilst explosions are going on at the hands of the ra and then in the in in your uh, probably the earlier part of your your so19 career your shot in the knee by an armed individual they are three huge incidents which i think fill up one's bucket of resilience very very quickly and ultimately have their effect on an ordinary person doing an extraordinary job and in 1996 you were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of a culmination of these events and the effect they had on you uh, at what point did you realise after going through those events that you that there was a problem that you know you weren't able to sleep at night you were, you were you were reliving those experiences at what how soon after did it it, it start to cause you an issue? To be honest, looking back in hindsight, Holly, probably after the stabbing, there was there was different bits that I can now reflect on and think you know it, it, I was struggling really after that you know, um, but it wasn't a conversation mental health just wasn't even like a subject that we even considered 
so as I said earlier, you know, you just you just got on with it. But I, I, you know, there were there were um, it would have been right early on, really. Mm. Uh, I think f- physical exercise was, you know, a coping mechanism um, and helped me cope. But yeah, so it just was that build up, that gradual build up. Um, I remember driving the firearms car one day to an incident. We were chasing down an armed suspect on a dual carriageway in rush hour. And I was driving, uh, going, you know, on blues and twos, going through the traffic to catch him up. And it all cl- kind of closing in on me a bit. And I was just really aware that I was majorly stressed, you know, and we caught up with him, dealt with him. And um, so, and juggling life, as, you know, being a parent, you know, there was no part-time work and it was just all the all this stress so it was it was a gradual thing I think you know you said you said it earlier that pint pot that fills up and gradually that last little drip of whatever Mm. it is that it overflows um so it started really having an effect on your decision making processes how you were responding and that's when you recognized and, and as you quite rightly point out there's always whenever you sit down with someone and talk through the history there's always snippets I think as you say that reveal themselves but because mental health and those stressful incidents weren't debriefed in the way that they should have done. Not because I don't think the police departments wanted to, but I don't think the awareness was out there. Is so, you know what is the result of our of our officers attending such stressful situations? How can we help them get through them, and, and how can we identify when they're struggling and having problems so that you can have that early interventions to stop the big fallouts? Definitely, and our culture as well. You know, stress was kind of a dirty word. It was a weakness. So the culture was such that you just you just got on with stuff. And I guess it was unhealthy coping mechanisms. You know, like perhaps going down the pub and getting drunk after work or whatever. You know, that that came into play. That 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 helped people sort of um, sort of cope. And this dark humour as well. And. Um, well, all those things. You see, I'm 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 a 2004-2005. That's when I joined, and 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 that's what you've just described. There is is so reflective of what my debrief was like. It was like, okay, end of Friday night shift. We're going to go and we're going to get we're going to go and get drunk. We're going to drink. We're going to talk about our seven nights of night shift of dealing with this public order, with dealing with violent people, and and that and, and that's how you kind of got through it in terms of that informal way you would you would talk with each other. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it wasn't until I. I... Um, got this treatment from a great guy um, in 95 called Professor Gordon Turbull who was an expert in mm. post-trauma that I kind of realised that it's just a normal what I was going through was a normal reaction to all these abnormal events uh, these sort of life-changing life-threatening events um, so it kind of put it into perspective that um, and I, I think that's, good- that's the most important point you make there is that these are normal reactions because often we think they're abnormal reactions and something's wrong with us but actually their normal response is to incredibly stressful situations and the body's way of dealing with it. Absolutely. And so that was really, although it was an unwanted sort of diagnosis because, you know, I felt in a way that I, I was a bit of a failure. It was also kind of a welcome diagnosis that, you know, actually I was just a normal human being and, yeah. and had experienced all these abnormal events. And so it kind of made sense of, of a lot a lot of things and the realisation that actually going back to that wasn't going to be be good for me or my young son um, and it was kind of a decision um to, you know to, to to leave sort of 1996 really and I had this medical diagnosis um yeah but you know a double-edged sword really because obviously sad to leave because that was a job that I, I I enjoyed doing and you know so yeah so that that was 96 and I was medically medically discharged 
Well, I I, I think uh, you know, especially certainly from my perspective, and I and I can I I can be sure that most everybody listening will certainly consider you not to be a failure at any stretch you know what you've achieved and what you went through was just quite remarkable in terms of the resilience you show to get through each one of those instances and just to keep going which again really defines the ordinary person doing extraordinary work but outside of policing what you've also demonstrated is that there is a life outside of policing for people that often sometimes find that they've been affected by a stressful situation or they've had to come out of the police for whatever reason and, and, you know, you've broken records, you're patrons of charities, you're an ambassador to the Curtis Palmer program. You've done some fascinating and amazing work. Do you want to talk us about through your post-policing life? Yeah, so it, it didn't happen instantly. You know, I, I remember handing my Warwick card in and um, just that was it. There was no support network. There was nothing. I didn't really, it was just on the verge of mobile phones coming in. So there's no, no social media. There was, there was literally nothing. So I walked away and kind of had to look in the mirror and think, who am I? What's my purpose? What's my identity? You know, it, it, so it wasn't an instant thing. And I sort of tried, tried to get on with life and did different jobs. And so it, it's been over the last sort of recent years, really, that I've got involved with all these amazing things. And it, it sort of happened um, three years ago. We, we, I got invited onto a team to try and break the deadlifting uh, 24-hour world record with a group of veterans um, mm. to, to raise money for, for, to support them. And it was kind of a turning point. We broke the world record. And um, and then I got to, went down to Hidden Valley Bushcraft run by Nick Goldsmith and spent a weekend in the woods with them as a result of it. And it, it, he... Because I'd lived with it so long for not talking about the story and I spoke about it around the campfire for the first time and he said, you've just got this remarkable story that you need to talk about. And I just thought, well, gosh, I've lived with it so long, it's quite ordinary to me, you know. Um, And and he got me onto a podcast with a friend of his and it's just kind of snowballed from that. It's amazing the power of this connecting with people. Nick was a Royal Marine with his own traumas and... Um, yeah, this great support network that, that's out there. And so I'm, I'm that patron of, 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 of the Woodland Warrior program that he runs. Um, and um, and then as I did Curtis Palmer, they saw me um, doing an interview about Hidden Valley and they got in touch with me and they've been amazing. I've been on an, you know, an expert expedition with them to Snowdon and, and um, I'm doing another one in um, going uh, adventure training again in September with them. They're doing amazing work and I've just recently been asked to be an ambassador for them um, and they're, they're unique. They're, they're the only um, police sort of uh, charity doing the work that they're doing. They're, they're incredible. So they've helped me and I've sort of, they've encouraged me to do public speaking, which is, you know, it's like this healing process as well for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's that two way thing. Um so you know it's it's well it's 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 normalizing isn't it really it's normalizing something that you know just needs to be normalized needs to be talked about more so that more people can have the confidence to come forward and say listen you know i'm actually not feeling great you know i've been through some you know, i've been through some tough times i've seen some horrific things you know and, and and you know recognizing that some people can cope with it and some people can't and i think there is no definitive timeline as to when that bucket may overfill. Some people are better at coping with stress than others. And I don't think you realise, especially as new recruits, don't realise kind of what that level is until they're kind of really exposed to the trauma to understand how they'll deal with it. Yeah. 
absolutely and we're all different we all have our unique things in life that you know everybody has things that come along and knock us for six that we have to deal with whatever they are in our lives it's just sharing that with people and um, you know bringing people together and you know the healing power of the outdoors and nature and all those kind of things I'm really passionate about um, the the, um, my friends run breath connection where they use breath work and cold water and that's they're working with the curtis palmer program and wow. um and that's been hugely successful um you know all these things that we would have just really laughed about wouldn't you know mm. back back you know when i joined it just wouldn't have been on the radar you know so there's great people out there doing great stuff and it's amazing to be involved with them and yeah we've just literally this weekend we've just done another um world record uh 24-hour sled push for um these charities to to raise money for them so it's great to give back you know to know that they're you know somebody else is going to be helped from the money that we've raised that's what it's all about really and um it, and it gives me that you know a sense of purpose back which mm. which is great for me too so and that's and that's sometimes the biggest thing is you know you can leave policing and just and it's 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 sometimes a little bit tough to find where you fit into society outside of you know the, the, the you know our soldiers often call it on civvy street and, and it is a, it's I think it's as difficult to navigate for for, for for coppers as it is for for soldiers and people that you know are in quite challenging and confronting roles so I think it's just incredible that you've been able to do it you know over time and slowly at your own pace you know it that's a, such a, a good point I left and as a woman it was really unusual so we're talking 96 so I felt I could drive a car fast I could shoot people <laughs> you know I've got all, I've got all these skills that um you know I, I think you know, I was very highly qualified but what could I do with them you know yeah. it was just this this feeling of being you know you know sort of lack of purpose and self-worth were really you know sort of badly affected you know by leaving so Although it's taken time, it's just I'm so passionate now that um, there's all these amazing people out there that are helping, and um, you know we're making progress in the right direction, aren't we? I think you know with with mental health and supporting people. Yeah, well, our our, our common uh, connection is with uh, Steve Lobby Thornton with Trojan Wellbeing, you know, an organisation here in the UK where we support, you know, in the early stages, it was it was firearms officers who are dealing with confronting situations. But that now that, that, that broadly is everybody in law enforcement who are who's having a tough time and even people outside of law enforcement, you know, NHS nurses and fire, you know, firemen and women who we can't forget also deal with confronting situations. But um, I think in, in conclusion and summing up, I think uh, it's been an absolute absolute honor listening to your story your resilience is something to be admired um it's quite incredible the career you you led from the moment you joined and winning that baton to receiving um your your honors and awards through your career to being the first mum to join SA19 is is certainly remarkable and something to be applauded and and uh in I must be. I'm in. I'm in awe of what you've achieved. So thank you ever so much for for taking the time to come on the podcast, sharing some of your confronting experiences. It's um, it's uh, it's you know, demonstrating a vulnerability and in, in sharing those very personal experiences. So thank you ever so much. And on behalf of my colleagues and I on the podcast, we we wish you all the best for the future. And if and if anybody listening to this is struggling, what's the best way? What's the best charity? Or what are the charities that they could reach out to? Yeah, so there's Hidden Valley Bushcraft. They're all on social media. Hidden Valley Bushcraft, uh, the Curtis Palmer Programme, that 
um, and Breath Connection. They're, you know, they're three that have, have helped me enormously. So, um, yeah, that, you know, it'd be, if there's somebody struggling, get get in touch with them. And I'm sure they'd, uh, you know, they do have a lot lot to offer. And, um, it, yeah, it'd just be nice from this to, to, to think that, you know, could help mm. somebody. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much again. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. <laughs>